Section 3 of Library of the World's Best Literature, Ancient and Modern, Volume 10. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Colleen McMahon. Library of the World's Best Literature, Ancient and Modern, Volume 10. Section 3. Selected Works by Philippe de Comines. Philippe de Comines. 1445-1510. The last in date among the great French chroniclers of the Middle Ages was Philippe de Comines, also written Comines or Comines. He was the scion of an old and wealthy family that attained to nobility by marrying into the house of the barons of Comines, the privilege being a reward for faithful allegiance in the times of trouble and warfare. The approximate date of his birth is the year 1445, his birthplace is not known with certainty, though it may be assumed to have been either on the estate of Comines, near Lille, in northern France, or at the Chateau de Renescure, near Saint-Omer. He lost his mother in 1447, and his father died in 1453, leaving an entangled inheritance that netted a sum of about 2,500 livres, which in those days sufficed to defray the child's current expenses and provide for his education. Under the guardianship of one of his relatives, Jean de Comines, the young orphan was brought up in the true spirit of the feudal times to which he belonged, and was taught the profession of arms. Reading and writing he also acquired, but whatever intellectual training he received beyond this point was owing altogether to his own efforts and exertions. It was a matter of sincere regret to him that his education never included the study of Latin. He became skilled with the pen, but used it for his own amusement not with a thought of leaving anything more than notes that might serve others as a basis for fuller historical descriptions. His style is terse and not devoid of charm, for he was not lacking in imagination, and by quaint simile or other rhetorical effect livened many a page of his chronicles. His vocabulary, without being very rich, is carefully selected, but his syntactical constructions are often abstruse and obscure. On the whole, however, this justice must be done to Philippe de Comines that what he may lose for want of natural ease of expression is compensated for by his virility of speech and true eloquence. His chief merit lies in his pithy remarks, replete with suggestion. But literary pursuits were not his proper field. In his days such occupations were left almost exclusively to the clergy, in whom alone was supposed to be vested the need and uses of book-learning. He sought as he grew up to remedy the shortcomings of his training, and acquired through contact with the numerous foreigners he was in a position to meet a fair knowledge of Italian, Spanish, and German. On coming forth from childhood, he writes, and being old enough to ride horseback, I was led to Lille before Duke Charles of Burgundy, then Count of Charolais, who took me into his service, and this was in the year 1464. Philippe de Comines was then in his twentieth year, a youth polished in manners, refined in tastes, and above all a most acute observer, and these qualities stamped him as a coming diplomat of rare natural ability, in touch with his time, and understanding himself and others sufficiently well to moralize and philosophize about men and things, to reach many a sound conclusion, and to utter many a true and wise saying. He is among the first thinking men of France who committed to paper the results of his labors as a moral philosopher, as a statesman, and as a trusted adviser to royalty. For eight full years, Philippe de Comines remained in the confidential service of the Duke of Burgundy, 
by whom he was sent young as he was on various diplomatic missions of the greatest importance first to london then to brittany finally to orange and castile in the course of these expeditions he came in contact with louis the eleventh king of france and knew how to ingratiate himself into his favour whatever the reasons for his rupture with the duke of burgundy whatever the special inducements offered by louis the eleventh the fact remains that he suddenly left his former master and possessed of knowledge of the utmost political importance to the king of france he entered the royal service and remained there until the king's death in august fourteen eighty three his work was generously recognized by louis the eleventh and even after his noble patron's death comine retained his court position for a time he gradually fell away however from his allegiance to the royal cause and threw himself heart and soul into a movement set on foot by a number of the feudal lords and directed by the duke of orleans himself against the person of the young king charles the eighth arrested on a charge of conspiracy he spent over two years in various prisons fourteen eighty six to fourteen eighty nine with ample time to think over the vicissitudes of human happiness a light sentence was finally passed upon him and having regained his liberty he was so far restored to favor as to be sent on diplomatic missions first to venice and then to milan though he lived in honor under louis the twelfth he retired shortly to private life on his estate of argentan where he died in fifteen ten it was in the solitude of his prison that philippe de comines began to write his reminiscences the chronique et histoire fact et composé par monsieur philippe de comines paris fifteen twenty four was written between the years fourteen eighty eight and fourteen ninety three it deals with the history of france from fourteen sixty four when comines went to the court of charles the bold to the death of louis the eleventh in fourteen eighty three the sequel chronique de roi charles huitième paris fifteen twenty eight written subsequently to fourteen ninety seven relates the story of the famous expedition to italy undertaken by charles the eighth in the pages of quentin derward where walter scott has given a graphic portrayal of the great man of that turbulent time philippe de comines stands out beside the crafty and superstitious louis the eleventh and the martial charles of burgundy as one of the most striking figures of a picturesque age the virtues and vices of king louis the eleventh from the memoirs of philippe de comines the chief reason that has induced me to enter upon this subject is because i have seen many deceptions in this world especially in servants toward their masters and i have always found that proud and stately princes who will hear but few are more liable to be imposed upon than those who are open and accessible but of all the princes that i ever knew the wisest and most dexterous to extricate himself out of any danger or difficulty in time of adversity was our master king louis the eleventh he was the humblest in his conversation and habit and the most painful and indefatigable to win over any man to his side that he thought capable of doing him either mischief or service though he was often refused he would never give over a man that he wished to gain but still pressed and continued his insinuations promising him largely and presenting him with such sums and honors as he knew would gratify his ambition and for such as he had discarded in time of peace and prosperity he paid dear when he had occasion for them to recover them again but when he had once reconciled them he retained no enmity towards them for what had passed but employed them freely for the future he was naturally kind and indulgent to persons of mean estate and hostile to all great men who had no need of him 
never prince was so conversable nor so inquisitive as he for his desire was to know everybody he could and indeed he knew all persons of any authority or worth in england spain portugal and italy in the territories of the dukes of burgundy and bretagne and among his own subjects and by those qualities he preserved the crown upon his head which was in much danger by the enemies he had created to himself upon his accession to the throne but above all his great bounty and liberality did him the greatest service and yet as he behaved himself wisely in time of distress so when he thought himself a little out of danger though it were but by a truce he would disoblige the servants and officers of his court by mean and petty ways which were little to his advantage and as for peace he could hardly endure the thoughts of it he spoke slightingly of most people and rather before their faces than behind their backs unless he was afraid of them and of that sort there were a great many for he was naturally somewhat timorous when he had done himself any prejudice by his talk or was apprehensive he should do so and wished to make amends he would say to the person whom he had disobliged i am sensible my tongue has done me a good deal of mischief but on the other hand it has sometimes done me much good however it is but reason i should make some reparation for the injury and he never used this kind of apologies to any person but he granted some favour to the person to whom he made it and it was always of considerable amount it is certainly a great blessing from god upon any prince to have experienced adversity as well as prosperity good as well as evil and especially if the good outweighs the evil as it did in the king our master i am of opinion that the troubles he was involved in in his youth when he fled from his father and resided six years together with philip duke of burgundy were of great service to him for there he learned to be complacent to such as he had occasion to use which was no slight advantage of adversity as soon as he found himself a powerful and crowned king his mind was wholly bent upon revenge but he quickly found the inconvenience of this repented by degrees of his indiscretion and made sufficient reparation for his folly and error by regaining those he had injured besides i am very confident that if his education had not been different from the usual education of such nobles as i have seen in france he could not so easily have worked himself out of his troubles for they are brought up to nothing but to make themselves ridiculous both in their clothes and discourse they have no knowledge of letters no wise man is suffered to come near them to improve their understandings they have governors who manage their business but they do nothing themselves nay there are some nobles who though they have an income of thirteen livres will take pride to bid you go to my servants and let them answer you thinking by such speeches to imitate the state and grandeur of a prince and i have seen their servants take great advantage of them giving them to understand they were fools and if afterwards they came to apply their minds to business and attempted to manage their own affairs they began so late they could make nothing of it and it is certain that all those who have performed any great or memorable action worthy to be recorded in history began always in their youth and this is to be attributed to the method of their education or some particular blessing of god the virtues of the duke of burgundy and the time of his house's prosperity i saw a seal ring of his after his death at milan with his arms cut curiously upon a sardonyx that i have often seen him wear in a ribbon at his breast which was sold at milan for two ducats and had been stolen from him by a varlet that waited upon him in his chamber i have often seen the duke dressed and undressed in great state and formality and by very great persons but at his last hour all this pomp and magnificence ceased 
and both he and his family perished on the very spot where he had delivered up the constable not long before, out of a base and avaricious motive. But may God forgive him. I have known him a powerful and honorable prince, in his great esteem and as much courted by his neighbors when his affairs were in a prosperous condition, as any prince in Europe, and perhaps more so, and I cannot conceive what should have provoked God Almighty's displeasure so highly against him, unless it was his self-love and arrogance in attributing all the success of his enterprises, and all the renown he ever acquired, to his own wisdom and conduct, without ascribing anything to God. Yet, to speak truth, he was endowed with many good qualities. No prince ever had a greater desire to entertain young noblemen than he, or was more careful of their education. His presents and bounty were never profuse and extravagant, because he gave to many, and wished everybody should taste of his generosity. No prince was ever more easy of access to his servants and subjects. Whilst I was in his service, he was never cruel, but a little before his death he became so, which was an infallible sign of the shortness of his life. He was very splendid and pompous in his dress, and in everything else, and indeed a little too much. He paid great honors to all ambassadors and foreigners, and entertained them nobly. His ambitious desire of glory was insatiable, and it was that which more than any other motive induced him to engage eternally in wars. He earnestly desired to imitate the old kings and heroes of antiquity, who are still so much talked of in this world, and his courage was equal to that of any prince of his time. I am partly of the opinion of those who maintain that God gives princes, as he in his wisdom thinks fit, to punish or chastise their subjects, and he disposes the affections of subjects to their princes as he is determined to exalt or depress them. Just so it has pleased him to deal with the house of Burgundy, for after a long series of riches and prosperity, and six score years' peace under three illustrious princes, predecessors to Duke Charles, all of them of great prudence and discretion, it pleased God to send this Duke Charles, who continually involved them in bloody wars, winter as well as summer, to their great affliction and expense, in which most of their richest and stoutest men were either killed or taken prisoners. Their misfortunes began at the siege of Neuse, and continued for three or four battles successively, to the very hour of his death, so much so that at the last the whole strength of the country was destroyed, and all were killed or taken prisoners who had any zeal or affection for the house of Burgundy, or power to defend the state and dignity of that family, so that in a manner their losses equaled if they did not overbalance their former prosperity. For as I have seen these princes puissant, rich and honorable, so it fared with their subjects. For I think I have seen and known the greatest part of Europe, yet I never knew any province or country, though of a larger extent, so abounding in money, so extravagantly fine in their furniture, so sumptuous in their buildings, so profuse in their expenses, so luxurious in their feasts and entertainments, and so prodigal in all respects, as the subjects of these princes in my time. And if any think I have exaggerated, others who lived in my time will be of the opinion that I have said rather too little. But it pleased God at one blow to subvert this great and sumptuous edifice, and ruin this powerful and illustrious family, which had maintained and bred up so many brave men, and had acquired such mighty honor and renown far and near, by so many victories and successful enterprises, as none of all its neighboring states could pretend to boast of. A hundred and twenty years it continued in this flourishing condition, by the grace of God, all its neighbors having in the meantime been involved in troubles and commotions, 
and all of them applying to it for succor or protection, to wit France, England, and Spain, as you have seen by the experience of our master, the King of France, who in his minority, and during the reign of Charles the Seventh, his father, retired to this court, where he lived six years, and was nobly entertained all that time by Duke Philip the Good. Out of England I saw also two of King Edward's brothers, the Dukes of Clarence and Gloucester, the last of whom was afterwards called King Richard the Third, and of the House of Lancaster, the whole family or very near with all their party. In short, I have seen this family in all respects the most flourishing and celebrated of any in Christendom, and then in a short space of time it was quite ruined and turned upside down, and left the most desolate and miserable of any house in Europe as regards both princes and subjects. Such changes and revolutions of states and kingdoms God in his providence has wrought before we were born, and will do again when we are dead. For this is a certain maxim, that the prosperity or adversity of princes depends wholly on his divine disposal. The Last Days of Louis XI The king, towards the latter end of his days, caused his castle of plessis les tours to be encompassed with great bars of iron in the form of thick grating, and at the four corners of the house four sparrow-nests of iron, strong, massy, and thick, were built. The grates were without the wall on the other side of the ditch, and sank to the bottom. Several spikes of iron were fastened into the wall, set as thick by one another as was possible, and each furnished with three or four points. He likewise placed ten bowmen in the ditches, to shoot at any man that durst approach the castle before the opening of the gates, and he ordered they should lie in the ditches, but retire to the sparrow-nests upon occasion. He was sensible enough that this fortification was too weak to keep out an army or any great body of men, but he had no fear of such an attack. His great apprehension was that some of the nobility of his kingdom, having intelligence within, might attempt to make themselves master of the castle by night, and having possessed themselves of it partly by favor and partly by force, might deprive him of the regal authority and take upon themselves the administration of public affairs, upon pretense that he was incapable of business and no longer fit to govern. The gate of the Plessis was never opened nor the drawbridge let down before eight o'clock in the morning, at which time the officers were let in and the captains ordered their guards to their several posts, with pickets of archers in the middle of the court, as in a town upon the frontiers that is closely guarded nor was any person admitted to enter except by the wicket and with the king's knowledge, unless it were the steward of his household, and such persons as were not admitted into the royal presence. Is it possible, then, to keep a prince, with any regard to his quality, in a closer prison than he kept himself? The cages, which were made for other people, were about eight feet square, and he, though so great a monarch, had but a small court of the castle to walk in, and seldom made use of that, but generally kept himself in the gallery, out of which he went into the chambers on his way to Mass, but never passed through the court. Who can deny that he was a sufferer as well as his neighbors, considering how he was locked up and guarded, afraid of his own children and relations, and changing every day those very servants whom he had brought up in advance, and though they owed all their preferment to him, yet he durst not trust any of them, but shut himself up in those strange chains and enclosures. If the place where he confined himself was larger than a common prison, he was also much greater than common prisoners. It may be urged that other princes have been more given to suspicion than he, but it was not in our time, and perhaps their wisdom was not so eminent, nor were their subjects so good, 
they might too probably have been tyrants and bloody-minded but our king never did any person a mischief who had not offended him first though i do not say all who offended him deserved death i have not recorded these things merely to represent our master as a suspicious and mistrustful prince but to show that by the patience which he expressed in his sufferings like those which he inflicted on other people they may be looked upon in my judgment as a punishment which our lord inflicted upon him in this world in order to deal more mercifully with him in the next and likewise that those princes who may be his successors may learn by his example to be more tender and indulgent to their subjects and less severe in their punishments than our master had been although i will not censure him or say that i ever saw a better prince for though he oppressed his subjects himself he would never see them injured by anybody else after so many fears sorrows and suspicions god by a kind of miracle restored him both in body and mind as is his divine method in such kind of wonders for he took him out of this miserable world in perfect health of mind and understanding and memory after having received the sacraments himself discoursing without the least twinge or expression of pain and repeating his paternosters to the very last moment of his life he gave directions for his own burial appointed who should attend his corpse to the grave and declared that he desired to die on a saturday of all days in the week and that he hoped our lady would procure him that favour for in her he had always placed great trust and served her very devoutly and so it happened for he died on saturday the thirtieth of august fourteen eighty three at about eight in the evening in the castle of plessy where his illness seized him on the monday before may our lord receive his soul and admit it into his kingdom of paradise character of louis the eleventh small hopes and comfort ought poor and inferior people to have in this world considering what so great a king suffered and underwent and how he was at last forced to leave all and could not with all his care and diligence protract his life one single hour i knew him and was entertained in his service in the flower of his age and at the height of his prosperity yet i never saw him free from labour and care of all diversions he loved hunting and hawking in their seasons but his chief delight was in dogs in hunting his eagerness and pain were equal to his pleasure for his chase was the stag which he always ran down he rose very early in the morning rode sometimes a great distance and would not leave his sport let the weather be never so bad and when he came home at night he was often very weary and generally in a violent passion with some of his courtiers or huntsmen for hunting is a sport not always to be managed according to the master's direction yet in the opinion of most people he understood it as well as any prince of his time he was continually at these sports lodging in the country villages to which his recreations led him till he was interrupted by business for during the most part of the summer there was constantly war between him and charles duke of burgundy and in the winter they made truces so that he had but a little time during the whole year to spend in pleasure and even then the fatigues he underwent were excessive when his body was at rest his mind was at work for he had affairs in several places at once and would concern himself as much in those of his neighbours as in his own putting officers of his own over all the great families and endeavouring to divide their authority as much as possible when he was at war he laboured for a peace or a truce and when he had obtained it he was impatient for war again he troubled himself with many trifles in his government which he had better have left alone but it was his temper and he could not help it besides he had a prodigious memory and he forgot nothing but knew everybody as well in other countries as in his own 
and in truth he seemed better fitted to rule a world than to govern a single kingdom. I speak not of his minority, for then I was not with him. But when he was eleven years, he was, by the advice of some of the nobility and others of his kingdom, embroiled in a war with his father, Charles the Seventh, which lasted not long, and was called the Praguerie. When he was arrived at man's estate, he was married, much against his inclination, to the king of Scotland's daughter, and he regretted her existence during the whole course of her life. Afterwards, by reason of the broils and factions in his father's court, he retired into Dauphiny, which was his own, whither many persons of quality followed him, and indeed more than he could entertain. During his residence in Dauphiny, he married the Duke of Savoy's daughter, and not long after he had great disputes with his father-in-law, and a terrible war was begun between them. His father, King Charles the Seventh, seeing his son attended by so many good officers, and raising men at his pleasure, resolved to go in person against him with a considerable body of forces in order to disperse them. While he was upon his march, he put out proclamations, requiring them all as his subjects under great penalties to repair to him, and many obeyed to the great displeasure of the Dauphin, who, finding his father incensed, though he was strong enough to resist, resolved to retire and leave that country to him. And accordingly he removed with but a slender retinue into Burgundy to Duke Philip's court, who received him honorably, furnished him nobly, and maintained him and his principal servants by way of pensions. And to the rest he gave presents as he saw occasion during the whole time of their residence there. However, the Dauphin entertained so many at his own expense that his money often failed, to his great disgust and mortification, for he was forced to borrow, or his people would have forsaken him, which is certainly a great affliction to a prince who was utterly unaccustomed to those straits, so that during his residence at the court of Burgundy he had his anxieties, for he was constrained to conjole the duke and his ministers, lest they should think he was too burdensome, and had laid too long upon their hands, for he had been with them six years, and his father King Charles, was constantly pressing and soliciting the Duke of Burgundy by his ambassadors, either to deliver him up to him, or to banish him out of his dominions. And this, you may believe, gave the Dauphin some uneasy thoughts, and would not suffer him to be idle. In which season of his life, then, was it that he may be said to have enjoyed himself? I believe from his infancy and innocence to his death, his whole life was nothing but one continued scene of troubles and fatigues, and I am of opinion that if all the days of his life were computed in which his joys and pleasures outweighed his pain and trouble, there would be found so few that there would be twenty mournful ones to one pleasant. End of section three. Recording by Colleen McMahon.